You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, Citizens Church. How are you? Good, all right. My name is Josh Patterson, and uh, I'm a pastor at the Village Church just down the road. Uh, So yesterday, uh, Blinker and I were at our son's uh, flag football playoffs, and uh, he said, hey, man, Jamin's not feeling well. I said, well, that stinks, and, um, and lo and behold, I'm here, okay? <laughs> so uh, I did not know this until yesterday afternoon-ish, and so uh, Jamin called and said, hey, um, it, a bug has hit my family, and, uh, and I'm fine, but everybody else is not, but I just feel like it's coming. And to me, that's worse. It's just sitting there waiting for impending doom. And, and I said, here's the deal. Uh, I'll do it. I'll jump in. I'll do it. And uh, he said, that's great. Uh, so then I called him back a couple hours later, and I said, hey, just to let you know, if you wake up in the morning, you feel fine. Uh, you could just do it. You can do it. Just text me. And he said, you know, immediately when I told you uh, you could do it, I regretted it. And I thought, that's offensive, Jamin. Uh, what did you regret? He said, no, 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 I just regretted giving it up in case I do feel good. And so I texted him last night at 10.30. I said, hey, how you feeling? He texted me at one. He said, I'm out, death has come. And so uh, <clears throat> pray for the Roller family. They are, uh, they are in the throes of it. And um, I'm honored to be here. I, I've said this, gosh, <laughs> I've been here a lot. And um, it would be so great. Uh, it, it'd just be great. It may not happen, but it would be great uh, if we could like plan it like well in advance and, and it'd just be one of those things that I could like prepare for and be uh, kind of circle on the calendar and think, man, this is, I can't wait to be there in March. Uh, and so maybe make note of that, Adam. Um, so I am honored to be here with you. Uh, I'm going to share a message that I have done before, no surprise, um, but uh, one that I think is important. I know it's important for me, and I'll, I'll start the message. Uh, we'll be in Matthew chapter 16, as, as we just actually just read it uh, with us and to us. And so Matthew chapter 16, we'll start in verse 13. And I think what's interesting about what Jesus does here, as Jesus begins to move into this region of Caesarea Philippi, but he walks into Caesarea Philippi, and uh, I've not been there, but apparently the architecture uh, in that day, the, the way the whole town was created, the, uh, the feel of the place. When you walked into the region of Caesarea Philippi, what you saw and experienced and smelled and, and just kind of absorbed was the pursuit of falseness by these people. Specifically, the pursuit of false gods, the pursuit of idolatry, the pursuit of that which was not true. So carved into the caves and into the region, what you would see is you would see idol worship, you would see carvings, you would see uh, imagery that pointed that these people, these people were chasing something that was false. They moved into this region of Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus has this opportunity to have a conversation with them. And it reminds me of a conversation that Natalie and I had, and I'm going to take us around and about to get there, but Natalie and I started dating in 1998, and uh, we started dating just a couple of weeks before college, and so she went to Baylor, I went to A&M, and uh, whoop, 
Um, Baylor's undefeated, so not sick and bears. Okay, I see you back there. Um, so we're, we're apart, and our, our dating relationship uh, was carried along a landline. Okay, do you remember this, where you had to actually call people? There was, there was a cord, unless you had the cordless thing. And we talked on the phone. And the way that my roommates and I had to work this, if you remember back in the day, which was not too long ago, you'd get the phone bill at the end of the month, and you had to go through and go, yeah, that was my call. That was my call. And you'd circle it, and you'd divide it up, and you'd pay with like a check, with like a sheet of paper that you'd write things on. And that's how Natalie and I's relationship started. Well, so it started in August, really end of July of 1998. So we get to February. And February is our first big Valentine's. We're seven months into the relationship. And I'm thinking at this time, I'm in. Like, I'm in. I... What I am looking for, hoping for, desiring in a woman and potentially a wife, I, I think she's got it. I'm excited about this. And so we're, we're kind of moving towards this. And I'm thinking at this moment, I want this Valentine's Day to pop. Like I, I, I want to be able to express to her this trajectory that I'm hoping for us. And so my roommates and I, we all had girlfriends at the time. And all of us were from Dallas. And so we just schemed an epic Valentine's weekend. And you can imagine what that looks like with three college guys who don't really know how to scheme an epic Valentine's weekend. And so we, we got some help from our moms and, uh, and it worked out fine. But here was the deal. I went and picked up Natalie and I asked her, I said, hey, would you mind putting on this blindfold? And I had garnered enough trust where that wasn't entirely strange. And so uh, she puts on the blindfold and I kind of drive around the neighborhood a little bit. So she doesn't quite know where we're going. We wind up in an Albertsons parking lot. My roommates show up there. Their girlfriends have blindfolds on. We flash lights and we caravan to my house. And when we get to my house, we pull up and, the, and the, the deal was you cannot say a word until the blindfold comes off. And somehow we managed to get all of them around the table. There's three total couples, six of us there. We pull the blindfolds off at the same time and everyone's like, wow, this is amazing. you're here, this is unbelievable. And the guys are like, yeah, this is what we're doing. Okay, it's going to be an epic night. So we, we kind of move into this. We had cooked dinner for them. Uh, shortly after dinner was served, the, the, there's a knock at the door, and we had invited a friend over to lead music. He played the piano as we ate. Uh, the great T-Bob Davis, if you know him, you know why I mentioned his name. Uh, so T-Bob played uh, piano for us through that. We danced. When dinner was finished, we danced kind of there in the foyer. T-Bob leaves, and then we move into the living room. Uh, my roommate, Paul, who was not very good at guitar, uh, played the guitar as we had written them a song based on Proverbs 31, okay? Uh, we were just shooting for the moon. It worked, y'all. I mean, you say what you want, okay? I got the girl. At the end of the day, I got it. It, it was worth it. So we sing the song. Eventually, everyone leaves. It's just Natalie and me, and we're on this green love seat. 1725 Edgewater, and, and I think this is, this is the moment I'm just going to say some things to her. I just want to share with her what's in my heart about her, and, and the whole night was kind of pointing this way, and so I said to Natalie, hey, I just need to tell you something. She was like, sure. What do you got? And I said, um, I love you. And she has these big brown eyes, the first thing I noticed about her, and her eyes got really big, and she was like, hey, I am not ready for that. I thought, okay. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, you, fellas, you know what it's like. You have this moment of vulnerability and courage. You muster it up, and it's like, I'm going to expose my heart to you. I'm going to give something that's precious to you, and then you have the potential to crush it, and she crushed it, right? She stepped on it, and in that moment, uh, I felt shame. I felt small. I retreat back into the shadows. I start deflecting and using all these defense mechanisms like, well, you're clearly misunderstanding me. When I said I love you, I don't mean, you, you probably thought it was this way. I'm not talking about that. I mean, I love you like a sister in the Lord, like, I've, like I have to, you know? Like I love you as, yeah, you're fun and this is neat, but I'm not thinking with, with probably what you thought I was thinking. Anyway, uh, can I take you home? And um, we proceeded to have um, a DTR. Y'all know what a DTR is? Okay, no, okay, I heard one no, but I heard some drowning yeses. And, and back in the college days, if you had a DTR, it stood for, say it with me, defining the relationship. Uh, it was dreaded among college men and prayed for among college women. It was one of these things where when the roommate would come home and he'd say, man, we had a DTR tonight, the guys were like, I am so sorry. <clears throat> and Women would come home and say, we had a DTR finally, and they would say, the Lord is faithful. You know, it's just <laughs> this kind of a deal. And we had this DTR, which means that we needed to define the relationship because apparently we weren't seeing things the same way, okay? And, and we did. We proceeded. We had a three-hour conversation. So about three o'clock in the morning, I'm thinking this thing is going to end. And um, I went and dropped her off, and, and we moved. Obviously, it didn't end. I didn't say I love you again for the next four years, uh, but uh, I'll get to that later. We had this defining the relationship moment. We just needed to set the terms straight. We needed to see some things. We needed to gain a little bit of clarity. And that's exactly what I see Jesus doing here in Matthew chapter 16. Obviously, the context is different, but the principle is the same. That he walks into this area of Caesarea Philippi, he looks around, and he chooses this moment to ask his disciples some questions. He takes this opportunity, this teaching moment, to step in and to say this as he surveys Caesarea Philippi. He says this, hey, who do people say that I am? And you feel that question. It's a relatively safe question. Uh, it's a general question. It's not too intrusive. And he's saying, as you're kind of walking through the streets, as you're milling about in the marketplace, as you're checking the trend line on Twitter, what, what are people saying about me? They chime in. They say, well, you know, some say that you're, you're John the Baptist. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I mean, those are great guys. Those are great answers. Yeah, I've got a son, his name's Luke, and if, if Luke grows up to be like John the Baptist, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, by and large, I'm pleased. I don't want his life to end like some of the way that those guys' lives end, but they're men of character, they're men of, of noble faith, they're men worth emulating. You think of John the Baptist, Jesus says about him, there's, there's no one born of woman greater than him. That it says that Jeremiah was called forth in his mother's womb. He's the weeping prophet, the spokesman for the nation of Israel. He wept and prayed and believed on behalf of a country that rejected the faith, and Jeremiah stayed strong. Elijah, think of the power that Elijah walked in, what he got to see as he called down fire from heaven, as he prophetically stood against the culture. I mean, these are great Men, they're great answers. It's just the wrong answer. 
So the question is, Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? But the question, the first one, who do people say that I am, it really moves from the general to the specific, to the unobtrusive and to the very vulnerable. If you look down, Jesus then asks a second question. And he says, but who do you say that I am? What do you think? What do you believe? I'm not asking what the town says. I'm not asking what the, what's trending on social. I'm asking you to stand up and give an account of what you believe. If you've been in that freshman English class, that freshman history class, and if the professor asks a question of the class and people just chime in, they're just giving answers. But it's different if they say, you, you in the blue shirt, stand up. We want to know what you believe. Can you feel the vulnerability in that? Can you feel how direct that is? Well, Jesus is asking this question because he cares about the answer. He's not just asking the question just to kind of move a conversation along. He's asking the question because he cares about what's in the hearts of his disciples. And their confession, what comes out of their hearts, is going to be absolutely essential as it's tied into the mission that he has for them. So he says, who do people say that I am? They give the answer. Then he says, but you, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter stands up and he says this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. What a bold confession. What a powerful testimony that Peter stands up in that moment with great courage and boldness and clarity. He says this about Jesus, you are the Christ the son of the living God. You are the Christ or the Messiah. You are the one we've longed for, hoped for, prayed for, for 400 years and even longer as we have waited and waited and waited. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, promise after promise after promise, fulfillment after fulfillment after fulfillment. It's you, you're the one. We've longed for you, waited for you, hoped for you, and you're here. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. As we look around and see all the dead statues, all the empty promises of Caesarea Philippi, as we look upon the empty promises and the vain pursuits of DFW, Peter says, you are the son of the living God. You are not dead, but you are alive. You are the second person of the triune God. You are the son of the living God. So he says in this confession, you're the savior who will redeem and you are the sovereign who will reign. Citizens, catch that. I mean, that, that's powerful. In fact, it's upon that confession that the church is built you feel the strength in that. You feel the difference in that from, from Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets too. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And notice what Jesus does. Or better yet, maybe notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't backpedal from that and go, whoa, 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 hush, Peter. 
you're going to get us killed, man. You can't talk like that. Or you've taken it too far. I, I see that you got caught up in the emotion of this moment. And, and you, you said something with good intent, but you just kind of crossed the line. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Which means this, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You're the son of John, Peter. Your dad did not reveal this to you. My dad did. This confession, Peter, does not come through earthly, vain, worldly pursuits. This confession, the confession that Peter just gave, is a confession that comes from on high. And Jesus blessed it. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And he goes on, he says, I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You see, in that moment, Peter steps forward, he gives a confession, and the rest of the church has been built upon that confession. If we just kind of fast forward through Peter's life, he's going to go through some difficult times. We'll talk about it here in a little bit. And he's going to move eventually to the day of Pentecost. Jesus has ascended. Peter steps forward. He essentially preaches this, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Thousands come to faith. Those thousands begin to live and breathe and move in and throughout Jerusalem. And a promise has already been given. And that promise was this. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. As thousands start coming to faith day in and day out in Jerusalem, there comes a man to persecute the church, a man named Saul. He stones a man named Stephen. Stephen essentially gives this sermon. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, as he's martyred, he confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Saul sees it. Fear spreads throughout the church. The church then spreads throughout the land. And what message do they take with them? As they move from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, they take this message. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That message, citizens, has been spreading and emanating out from that moment until now. You see, somebody told somebody who told somebody who told you. Somebody told somebody who told your pastor, who told your parent, who told your coach, who told your teammate, who told your roommate, your bandmate, your friend, your neighbor, who told you. My guess is the vast majority of us this morning did not go to Jerusalem to hear this message, but this message was brought to you. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then at some point in your life, you have confessed this, and you still do, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Praise God. Last night, I was at an Acts 29 event. And as we kind of gathered in this ballroom, looking at what God is doing across the globe, as we heard story after story after story, video after video, testimony after testimony, church being born after church being born, it is happening, it is moving, transformation is taking place. Why? Because Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, young and old, near and far, 
This is the message of the gospel. And if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, this is your confession. But the question, who do you say that he is, is not a question that you answer one time. It's not something that you do as you walk an aisle as a six-year-old to shake the pastor's hand and make a profession of faith. You do it then. But you know this, church. You're answering that question every single day. In every situation, in every circumstance, the refrain of your heart is, who do I say that he is? He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does that mean? It means that, that my life can be centered and positioned under him because he forgives and he reigns and he rules. And that's exactly where the conversation goes with Jesus and the disciples. So you have this wonderful confession and then you see in verse 21, it says this, from that time, from the confession, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Oh, again, Peter, he took him aside, he began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I don't want to blame Peter in this moment. I've been there. He didn't know. I mean, his hopes were one way. His reality, he thought, was this way. But surely you've had that moment of a paradigm shift where you thought, you thought life really worked like this only to be clued in the, uh, no, it's actually this. Maybe that happened at college when you showed up. Maybe it happened when your first kid entered the world. Maybe it happened uh, when you realized these bills actually just don't get paid, right? Like you've had a paradigm shift. I was talking with a, a couple um, this past fall. We were sharing stories about uh, engagement, how we, kind of how we moved forward uh, with, our, with our spouses. And he says this, you know, we, I've been pursuing her and, and I thought she kind of liked me, and she had, this, she had this boyfriend who was out of town. And I, I kind of came in, and it was like this Hallmark movie scene. At least that's the way he tells it. And he said, I, I come in, and she's supposed to fly out the next morning to go visit this guy in Virginia. And he says, hey, don't get on that plane. Remember Goonies? It's like, don't ride up Troy's bucket. You remember that? Did I just date myself? Okay, please, you've seen Goonies. If not, check it out, all right? It's a movie. So he steps in, he's like, don't you get on that plane. Don't get on that plane. Next morning, she doesn't go, okay? They get married, they have four kids, happily ever after. And they're kind of telling that story. Well, that was like over a decade ago. Well, about two years ago, they were sharing that story. And uh, she says, yeah, you know, we have this night. He comes in, hey, don't get on the plane. Don't go to Virginia. I want you to be with me, you know. And she said, so <clears throat> the next morning, I'm driving to the airport. And uh, I get there, and there's bad weather. And the flight's canceled. So I turn around and drive home. He goes, <laughs> what? <laughs> the flight was canceled? She said, yeah, that's why I didn't get on the plane. He's like, that, 
I thought you need to get on the plane for me. She's like, well, I mean, eventually, yeah, but I mean, it worked out for us. But so his whole life, he thought he swept in that night was don't get on the plane. She had this moment of love, epiphany, and she didn't go, but actually it was just bad weather. Okay, that's a paradigm shift. They're in counseling, uh, they're working through it. Uh, they'll be fine. But that Peter, I mean, he steps in. He's just had this big confession. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. He steps forward and Jesus says, hey, we're going to Jerusalem. I've got a mission. And Peter says, no, 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 no you don't. Now see, here's the plan. Here's the way it needs to go, Jesus. And if you just think about the irony of this, I mean, just shortly before this, he says, you're the son of the living God. You're the Christ. You're God. So let me tell you how to run the world. And we chuckle at that, right? And this is why I don't blame Peter, because I find myself in Peter so often. You ever wake up entitled? You feel like life should have gone this way for you because you were good, because you did this, you kind of walk through the checklist. And, and because you did these things, life was supposed to go this way. You, you ever link those disappointments with God? If you're courageous enough to kind of share your disappointments in life, it, I know, I've pastored long enough to know that many of us, if not at times, all of us find our disappointment in him. No, 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 this this is how I want my life to go. This is how it needs to be, Jesus. It, it's supposed to go this way. And Jesus has a very strong but gracious rebuke for Peter. And he says, you need to get behind me. But notice what he says, get behind me, Satan. That's strong. If Jesus calls you Satan in a rebuke, you need to wake up and pay attention. Like, he's trying to get your attention here. And he says, you're not thinking the way that you need to be thinking, Peter. You're, you're thinking worldly thoughts, and in fact, you're thinking demonic thoughts. Because this is the way that I'm going, Peter, and I'm inviting you into it. But for you to try to get me off course from my mission, which by the way, my mission includes saving you, Peter, and I'm not gonna let it happen. You need to get behind me. And then Jesus goes on to teach again, and he says this, starting in verse 24, then he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, Peter, Josh, citizens, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life or his soul. So he said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I want you to come with me, but I, you just need to know this, that on the way and when we get there, we will suffer and I will die. But that death, that death is actually a death that will bring life. And Peter, what I have for you, what I have for any and all who would follow after me is actual, true life but it doesn't come the way that you think it's going to come. You see, true life comes through death. As the seed goes into the ground, it brings forth life. But if you think you're going to hold on to your life and grasp it and cling to it, you'll actually 
lose it. So lay it down. Lay it down. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which is a fantastic read, he says this at the beginning. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And it sounds like a morbid invitation. It sounds like a dark invitation. But what is Jesus actually calling you and me into? Life. He's calling you into life. It's just that life comes through death, first his own and then yours. As you lay down your life, as you have confessed that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that confession is linked with this commitment, Lord, where you go, I will go. I will follow you all the way to death. I will lay down my life because I know that by laying my life down, I actually get life. And those who don't see it, those who don't trust it, those who clamor after the things of the world will think that they have it, only to have it slip through their hands. Several years ago, I was on a, a little vacation when the news alert came through my iPhone, ironically. And the news was that Steve Jobs had just passed. He had just succumbed to cancer. And, um, I can remember thinking uh, the irony of Jobs' life up against this text. And I, I don't say this to disparage him, and I hope that his life ended the way that I, then differently than the way that I think it did. But I read that big Walter Isaacson biography on Jobs, and he's a fascinating man. But if you, if you say this about him, it's actually true, it's not hyperbolic. He changed the world. He changed your life. You realize that there, there's like six different domains, and I can't remember all of them, but he, he changed telecommunication. He changed the personal computing. He changed movies through Pixar and on and on. He literally changed the world. But if you read that Isaacson biography or just skip to the end, it leaves you with a haunting feeling as his life is left hollow and empty. And all the prestige and all the fame and all the power and all the wealth that was his. The text is saying here, Jesus is saying, that all vanishes. And in the end, it, it's a fool's errand and a foolish trade. That you would, you would pursue or even get the whole world only to lose your soul or your life. It's not worth it. And it's ironic that Jesus starts this with a question and then he ends it with a rhetorical question. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? And so I'll end with this. And it's just an invitation to come to the Savior. You're maybe coming back to him for the thousandth time. It's maybe recommitting, reorienting, re-kind of perspectivaling. I just made that word up but your, your life is adjusting to him again, just like he did yesterday, just like he did the day before. Why? Because you believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. But I know this, there are some in this room, you don't know him. 
We just don't know him as the Christ, the son of the living God. You, you don't know about the forgiveness of sins. Maybe you knew Jesus's resume. You could say some fun facts about him, but you didn't know that he actually came to bring you life and that he laid down his life for you. And he's inviting you in that you might have life to the fullest. And any pursuit outside of him, look at me, church, it's vain and it's empty. It just is. And for those of you who do confess Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God, that today and tomorrow and the days coming forward, more and more and more would your confession line up with your commitment. So the story that I told you at the beginning about Natalie where I said, hey, I love you, and she rejected me. Some four years later, um, went to dinner. And uh, it's interesting, at this particular dinner, I didn't eat anything and Natalie ate everything. Our first dinner together, she ate nothing and I ate everything. It's because I knew what was gonna happen on this particular night and I said, hey, Let's, uh, let's head back to my house and then we'll kind of gather with the group and, and go from there. She said, that sounds great. And we go back to my house and 1725 Edgewater. Go back to that same green love seat. And I said, um, I just had a couple of things that I wanted to share with you. I, I've been thinking about Peter. And Peter said some things that I think with good intention he believed. Um, he told Jesus some things, I'll never, I'll never forsake you, I'm not gonna let you down, but of course he denies him three times. Uh, it's tough. But I think Peter's intention was good, and I said to her, I said something to you four years ago, and my intention was good, but I just didn't know all that came behind it. So I told you four years ago that I loved you, and I wanna tell you tonight, I love you. And she said, I've been waiting for you to say that. I said, I said it four years ago, okay? This whole thing could have been avoided. Um, and she starts crying, and I sat there and just let her cry and sit in it for a second. <clears throat> and I said, hey, I'm not done. And I had stashed the ring right there, right in that green love seat. Who knows what else was down there? But I, I reached in there, and I pulled out that box, and I was like, That's not what I did. <laughs> I was trembling, you know, and then I get down on one knee and I, was, I said something to the effect of, um, I love you, I wanna be with you. I, I want you and me to be one. And I said, you know, will you marry me? She said yes, and, and then I asked her to put a blindfold on, and she did, and we drove to her parents' house. We had this, this kind of celebration night Shortly after that, we, we were at the steps of an altar. And I stood here, she walked down the aisle, we shared vows, we exchanged some promises one to another. She took on my name, a sense of my identity. There were two separate people, healthy in a very good and differentiated way, but there's a oneness about us that I, I just don't live life apart from her. I just don't make independent decisions, especially giant life-altering decisions without running it through the grid of my wife. Why? Because she's mine and I'm hers. And this is what it means to walk with the Lord. I, I don't know what it's like 
to not be in relationship with him. It doesn't make sense for the believer to live a life that's independent of the one that saved them and the one that is saying, I am life. So he's inviting you, church, and us to come together in a commitment of sorts where it's almost, it's almost like we don't know where one starts and the other ends. I get it. I'm frail. I'm a sinner. I'm weak. And that analogy eventually breaks down. But you get what Jesus is offering. You understand the invitation that he's inviting you into. It's depth of commitment. It's depth of relationship. And what he's offering you there is actually what your heart truly longs for. Life. Life. Father, we do come before you and we thank you for your son. We thank you for Peter's confession. We thank you, our Father, that you did bless him with this confession that he, Jesus, is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We thank you for opening the eyes of our hearts that we might see and believe. We thank you for saving us and rescuing us and redeeming us because you, Jesus, are the Savior who redeems. <laughs> We've... We thank you that you have led us and guided us in life through your Holy Spirit. We take great comfort in knowing that you're the sovereign who reigns. You have us. It's going to be okay. Because you reign and rule supreme in and over our lives. And I do pray this morning for this church that I love that you would bind their hearts to the Savior. More and more, day in and day out, that you would bind their hearts to your son. And for those in here who don't know Christ, those in here who have not yet made that confession, the confession that Jesus is the Savior, I pray that you give them the courage to take that step on this good morning, that you would interrupt their lives in the best kind of way, that you'd open the eyes of their heart that they might confess and believe and trust that Jesus, Jesus has died on the cross for their sins, rose again in victory. We love you. We thank you. We bless you. We pray all of this in Christ's name.